Hello and welcome to Ways Women Lead, the podcast where remarkable female leaders share their personal journeys and offer valuable guidance on advancing your career as a woman in leadership. Join host Anna Gramadska and her guests as they delve into various aspects of leadership, including diversity, equity, and inclusion. This podcast is brought to you by Six Group, a global executive search and leadership advisory firm. Michaela, welcome to the podcast. It is good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So just to share uh, an introduction, you are a former remote experience manager at Mesmo, currently in transition into a new role. Mesmo is an observability platform that manages and takes action on data to fuel enterprise-level application development and delivery. Currently, you're transitioning into a new role, interestingly, starting tomorrow. I'll let you talk a little bit about it yourself. And we have a few interesting topics to discuss today from creating a remote experience for employees across organizations to creating a psychological safety in organizations to managing change. So maybe to start from scratch, to start from the beginning, what's your story? What has been the biggest milestones in your career and how did you get into this very interesting and unusual role for some industries, probably more common in the technology industry, probably a little bit less common in in some other industries? Yeah, absolutely. I started off actually working in nonprofits and publishing right after grad school. I moved to New York City and I was working for a nonprofit that was really close to my heart called The Marshall Project. They're a nonprofit newsroom that specifically covers criminal justice issues in the United States. I moved into HR from marketing, actually. Basically, I relocated to the UK to be with my partner, and I took a job in marketing with a company called Hive HR. I was really, really attracted to their mission. It was all centered around giving people better work days, helping people find fulfillment at work, and you know, just bringing benefit to organizations and people, people alike. And part of my role as a marketing executive for that company was researching these issues that people professionals were facing and how our offering could help fix them or solve those problems. And I just ended up finding it all very, very fascinating, very interesting. And and one day I decided I don't want to be this step removed from helping people leaders solve this. I now want to be on the front line. I want to be a people leader myself. I want to be one of our customers. (laughs) So I started looking around in the market for kind of entry level opportunities, a lot of which were really walled by specific credentials that you were required to have. One of them here known as the CIPD, which is basically the governing body for HR here. And I wasn't ready to go back to school, uh, having just done the master's and everything. So I was looking for kind of a side door and an area where I could dip my toes in and learn more without necessarily committing to that being my full term career path. And I got really fortunate. I, I found a remote experience manager job with starting with a hotel tech startup, and it looked amazing. They had pitched this as kind of a traveling cultural ambassador and onboarding buddy, somebody that would still be responsible for a lot of people ops work, but clearly you did not have to have a traditionalist background, and maybe they didn't even want you to have one because they were really keen on being innovative and doing things differently as opposed to the norm. 
so that's how I fell into it, as many people fall into the places that they're now working. <laughs> okay, so this is how you started new career as a remote experience manager. So help us to understand what this role actually it is. What are your responsibility? What's your focus? I know, Anna, we were talking earlier off offline actually about how this role is not necessarily as new as a lot of people think, right? It's just that COVID made it kind of mainstream and organizations started seeking this person out. But in fact, this person has been working in a lot of organizations for a long time, especially tech, right? But it, it looks very, very different depending on the organization and their needs. I've held this post now two times and the responsibilities were like night and day between those organizations. In one, it was more significantly focused on building community and connection and, and finding ways for people to organically develop friendships with one another that would improve how they work together professionally. In another, it was much more operational efficiency focused, figuring out how to establish the best remote work working norms throughout the whole org, how to make those sticky. And I also wouldn't say that it's necessarily limited by any stretch to that scope that I've just defined. It, it can go even broader than that. It, it all, again, just depends on the business needs. So with the businesses that you've been with, has it sat under HR or elsewhere in the organization? Yes, both times I've held the position, I've been within the people function as opposed to, say, the ops function. But I do know different leaders in this space that are more the head of the ops function and in different, different places of the business. It's an interesting role because... Uh, Again, based on our previous discussions, it, it's so encompassing. You, you are working with so many different functions to make it work, to make that remote experience work for the entire organization. So why was this role created and why was it important for the organizations that you worked for? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in one case, it was about sustaining the culture as they went through a period of hyper growth. The organization had already developed this really, really vibrant company culture on a remote basis with a handful of people working in London where there was a hub um, that people could work from, but no necessary requirements to attend that physical space. And they didn't want to lose that. It's so difficult to build culture. It's so difficult to keep it as you scale really aggressively. And they hired someone to really look after that and make sure that it was being embedded from day one and even before day one in the pre-boarding sequence and in our application process, like just keeping our culture flowing through all those different areas. Um, in the second case, it was much more a reactive decision, which is, is not a bad thing. I'm not making a, a valuative claim about that, but it was more in response to COVID. This company had gone remote in response to COVID, like so many, and then decided to um, remain that way indefinitely. And in order to do that, you know, there had to be changes to their norms, their ways of working. And to put just a bit more intentionality behind it, people have been very good at adapting to this unexpected circumstance in the world, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean there's nothing to improve upon, right? Um, just because you've made it work doesn't mean that you're making it work the best that you could. And that's really what I was brought in to support with was as an expert in these ways of working, how do we intentionally address the different disadvantages and advantages of remote work for our specific company? And that's what I was brought in to support with. 
So to make it uh, a little bit more tangible and, and maybe to give an idea or an advice for other organizations or other HR leaders who maybe would want to create this position within their organization, what sort of initiatives we would be working on typically? What sort of specific initiatives to, to achieve this cohesive culture and, and to achieve this good remote experience for all employees who, who have just moved to this uh, remote working arrangement for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, onboarding is a huge part of it, one that you would usually recognize as being under the HR side of the house, right? Because everything starts from day one and starts before day one, as I said. Really optimizing the different avenues that we have to train our team members in ways of working, not just in onboarding, but also company-wide trainings on things like communication differences and styles, or even how to just use tooling effectively and how to optimize the tools that you're using to make you more effective as a remote communicator or a remote employee. All things in that area would be initiatives mm -hmm. I'd own as well as culture-based initiatives, things centered on building connections with one another, whether that's virtual kind of off-sites, you know, opportunities to play games or have meaningful conversations you might not otherwise have on Zoom and, and to have that conversation really intentionally. Those would be things in my area of ownership and at least at Mesmo, some of my biggest projects included evolving our company values actually with the executive staff. So I was leading workshops on our desired and aspirational culture and, and what feels really present and accurate to how we exist today and what's resonating with our people. And on the topic of what's resonating with our people, employee feedback was a huge area of ownership for me as well owning our recurring engagement surveys, owning ad hoc surveys, owning ad hoc focus groups to dig into areas of the business that we realized were more important or we wanted to learn and understand more about all of that. So mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. truly, really limitless. Can you think of uh, maybe one specific initiative that you so had particularly positive impact on the employees, but particularly positive response from your employees. You, you really saw that it, it made change on the workflows or employees' well-being or better communication, better co collaboration, whatever it might be. It's, it's an interesting one to answer because change takes time, right? Mm -hmm. Meaningful change takes a lot of time in some cases, particularly for some of the people issues that we might be exploring and, and uncovering within our companies. But I think onboarding is one of the most impactful areas of your business. And, and people often do not invest enough in this space. But for me, that is one of the biggest areas that I was able to make impact at Mesmo. And that showed up and was validated in lots of ways, not just employee feedback, but also external recognition. You know, in the last year, we were nominated for and won a reworked impact award for the changes that we made to that program. And some of the comments and, and quotes that we received from employees in the embedded feedback requests of that program were things like, this is the best onboarding experience I've ever had. I wish every company, you know, put this much care into it. It was so comprehensive. It was so culturally sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm super proud that we were able to do that and do that on a remote basis where people usually think that it's a little harder to do than in person, right? Conveying tone and conveying what's important and making people really feel 
like they belong and that there's a community that they're a part of now. So I'm super proud of that initiative. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of my favorite areas to work in, honestly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it's where I started, but also because I know it it sets people up for success. It truly does. From day one, people decide really, really quickly if they're going to stay with your organization for one year, two years or beyond and onboarding, that's your opportunity to do it if you do it well. Of course. And it makes absolute sense, doesn't it? Because the person's mind when they just joined you is fresh. They haven't made any opinions yet. They haven't learned any wrong ways of working yet or ways that you wouldn't want them, I don't know, to follow. Maybe the processes are updated or whatever it might be. Their minds is fresh. It's a way for you to embed and, and teach the ways of working you want be exactly. uniformly adopted by everyone and to shape their opinion about about the culture uh, to adopt certain values once people have you know learned that it's, it's difficult to change it exactly it's so much easier to learn something new than to unlearn something that you've been practicing for years and it's not even necessarily that you've learned the wrong thing or practicing the wrong thing it's just that needs have changed and now it's time to pivot or adapt and that can be really really difficult for some change advantage is extremely complex and extremely difficult because of that uh, very reason it's different once People adopted certain habits and they worked for them or, or made certain opinions and they have been proven in their mind. It's really difficult to, to as you said, unlearn that or undo that or ch- change it. So, so onboarding is a perfect opportunity to embed just the right ways of, of working. So if someone wanted to create this role, remote experience manager for the first time, what would the advice be to, to make a success out of it? What what could be the, the biggest pitfalls or, or, or mistakes that that typically made when trying to create this role or when, when trying to move into more remote working experience? That is such a great question. And I'm actually reflecting now on a few occasions where CEOs or COOs have approached me and asked for advice on developing a JD uh, for this particular role or talking about what this person should be responsible for. And my advice, first and foremost, is always start with the business need. What is it exactly that you have realized that makes you think you need to bring this person in? What is the challenge that you are hoping they are going to solve for as opposed to other people within your company currently? And who are going to be their main partners? Now, the other piece of advice besides that is to communicate extremely clearly with that person's stakeholders what their areas of decision-making are going to be and where they are going to have authority as opposed to advising or consulting capability. So because the role is so nebulous, right, and because the role often touches upon areas that are traditionally in the ownership of HR or even IT or ops, it's so important that those teams understand how this person will partner with them and where they might have kind of a final say on a necessary change or something that they want to implement, whether it be a tool or a new way of conducting work or um, a different order of events, you know, changes to workflow. That's so critical. That is really Mm -hmm. going to make or break this person's success. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can make the difference between them coming in and having the desired impact that you've hired them to create versus them becoming a catch-all or an island that gets isolated by these other teams. 
and people not not trusting that person's area of expertise because they think that something is in their ownership traditionally and should stay so. That's critical for, for every role, but even more so for a role that is so new, as you mentioned, that, that people might have uh, certain preconceptions but not full knowledge about. Yeah, where people might not understand why this person would be supporting on things like engagement surveys, for instance, traditionally very much in HR's sole ownership. They are considered the experts in this area and the experts in how to implement it, but bringing in a remote experience manager to help facilitate those on a remote basis and to help you you know, evolve the question set that you are developing, to be asking questions that are more important to ask in a remote context, for instance. You can have such a great partnership, but you won't have that if your people have not been informed with clarity from day one how this person is going to offer that. <laughs> you might end up accidentally creating like a, a tension between these groups instead of the, the valuable partnership that turns them into profit centers. <laughs> So both organizations that you worked for had full remote working arrangement, right? Would you suggest this role for organizations that offer more of a hybrid arrangement, so working from home and and office? Absolutely. In fact, I'd almost say that it's, I don't want to say that it's even more important in those cases, Mm -hmm. but a part of me is drawn to say that because I know that the obstacles of hybrid working are even more. And you know, particularly around things like proximity bias emerging in hybrid setups, a person that is actively learning about and focusing on how to address and avoid these things is so important and so valuable. One of the organizations that I was with when I held this position, we were, we did provide employees with the choice of whether or not they wanted to go attend a co-working space or attend our London hub or work solely from home. It was just unique to their circumstance and and it was their choice, as much choice as we could provide to them, right? Because we couldn't necessarily create hubs all over the place yet. I would say this position is extremely valuable and maybe even more so to a hybrid organization that is, is scratching the surface of this or is trying to make sure that they avoid inequities that can sometimes arise with that setup. Because one of the something that we again we discussed in the past, uh, one of the benefits of of having this remote working arrangement and then this role is instilling a more diverse and inclusive culture because you formalize certain workflows, etc. Another topic that uh, again we touched upon, which I thought was quite interesting, which your role touches upon is building psychological safety in organization, which is part of uh, that remote working experience. It's important that, especially when people work remotely, that they feel that psychological safety, there's ample of benefits to having instilled that psychological safety within the organization to employees' well-being and performance. So maybe if you could, uh, from your experience, say a little bit more, why is it important? How would you do this and why is it important to, to build psychological safety with an organization? I mean, we, we can't talk about psychological safety mm-hmm. without talking about trust, right? Like they go mm-hmm. hand in hand. And although the mechanisms for building psychological safety might seem different, it's all about behaviors and the behaviors that you you know, make sure happen in your organization versus the behaviors that you tolerate. So just to make sure we're all talking about the same thing, 
my understanding of psychological safety is that it's about interpersonal risk taking and, and it's the sense that you can do that confidently where you are. So I can speak my true mind without fearing punishment or that my team members are going to retaliate or like humiliate me in front of the rest of the group. I can offer ideas and questions and concerns or, or make mistakes without fearing the same things. The reading that I've done in this area tells me that there are really three core leadership behaviors that help build that. And it mostly all boils down to just don't know everything and don't <laughs> convey that you know everything. <laughs> so my advice would be to build this in any organization, you should do three things. One, acknowledge your own fallibility and the limits of your knowledge. So admit if you've made a mistake or you don't know the answer to something and encourage other people to do the same. Model curiosity, ask lots and lots of questions, ask really sincere questions. Um, and finally, frame work as a learning problem, not an execution problem. Treat everything as an experiment in your organization and the outcome of work should not exclusively be about the output, but about the learning of how you're going to do even better next time. Um, th that would be my advice as to how to build mm -hmm. this. And, and as far as why it's important, putting aside all the benefits to human well-being and, and health and how your teams will work together, it's been linked to innovation, higher levels of innovation. Um, teams with really great psychological safety also report higher cross-functional engagement and cooperation. So you'll see more work um, throughout your organization and teams that maybe don't traditionally work side by side. The benefits though are are super vast. It's not just um, the fluffy, we get along stuff. I've been reading a lot about it. And for example, Brenna Brown, she uh, has written a lot of books around leadership and then how vulnerability, showing vulnerability is important mm -hmm. to create culture where people feel psychologically safe. And if they feel psychologically safe, they are more courageous, uh, they are bolder, they, they are more likely to experiment, to ask questions, to learn, to make hard decisions uh, mm -hmm. and, and ultimately perform better. Have you seen, and it's interesting how you've boiled it down to three key behaviors that would help leaders to create that culture of psychological safety. Have you seen the trend of, of leaders adapting these behaviors more and more? Because I think it's it's something that is in transition in organizations right now. Cultures used to be a little bit different in organizations. Do you see people adopting these behaviors more and more or what's your experience? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to the organizations I've been a part of, right? And I've certainly seen this firsthand, seen leaders show up as themselves more. And, and specifically what I mean by that, I guess, is that they are open about their personal life and who they are outside of work, their, their interests, their passions, their challenges, things that they're facing. It's very, very humanizing and it makes it safe for me to show up in the same way with them. And it encourages that trust and allows us to accomplish even more together and to be more invested in each other. I feel that I've definitely seen that with a number of leaders that I've worked with. And for others, I definitely know, and I, I, I empathize with them that it is more challenging for them to embrace that. So 
everyone's on a different journey. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing lots of progress. I'm really proud of that where I see it. And I do understand people who are a bit more averse to that still or hesitant to really live that out and to be vulnerable, you said, Mm -hmm. to be vulnerable and to be authentic in the workplace. I think it's fair for some people to be hesitant in that way, but I do hope that they will continue to try and that we will continue to evolve as a society and not disproportionately, you know, punish people who do show up as themselves because that is one of the very real reasons that some people are hesitant and it, it exists. It's documented. It's never easy to change your behaviors, isn't it? It's, it's only a natural human reaction. Be used to certain behaving, then it's only normal that it can be challenging. But, but I think it's important to talk about it and, and then try to reinforce certain behaviors and certain cultures. Final question I wanted to ask you about uh, change management, because your work involved lots of change. I mean, it's change management. It really is. <laughs> Should be change management manager. <laughs> Especially at Mesmo, when the organization decided to uh, move into remote, fully remote working model. What have been your biggest lessons, most important lessons from that experience of managing that change across the entire organization? Even similar, actually, to the previous question you asked me about encouraging leaders to behave in different ways in order to build psychological safety, like start with the benefits. So be crystal clear on whatever the expected benefits of a change proposal are and and metricize that as much as possible. So make sure you're attaching inarguable figures to it, numbers somewhere in the organization. (laughs) Qualitative data is extremely powerful, but but try to also find quantitative data points that you can measure over time to show that your desired impact is either being achieved or not being achieved. The second piece of advice would be to start small. For some folks, change is downright scary. You know, it's it's not just uncomfortable, it's it's terrifying. But you can help people navigate change more easily by not asking too much of them too soon. So if you make smaller iterations and changes, you allow enough time for people to adopt those, to, to build new habits and make those stick, then you can repeat that process again and again and drive change much more effectively. Now, of course, that that might not always be viable depending on what it is that you need to change and why, but I, I definitely advise starting small. And the, the final piece of advice would probably be to know who your change champions are. So identify some additional people right away across different functions who are going to be really, really open and adaptable to change and leverage them. Leverage them to help model and to reinforce these changes because I can't be present in every single Zoom meeting or every single email thread, nor do I want to be, nor does anyone else want me to be, right? To make sure that the change that you desire is really happening, you need to have other people in the organization that are, again, modeling that, reinforcing it, calling it out when it's not being, you know, adhered to. And I think that is a great recipe for really effective change management at any scale. It's really important to know your people and, and to collaborate uh, again across all levels. Quite often these champions are informal. It's not always the, the formal uh, leader within a specific team. 
that will be your champion. So it's important to, for example, collaborate with functional leaders who know their direct teams a little bit better and who can advise you who is that informal person that can be uh, your champion within within a specific team. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's, it's super interesting. It's so, so important to just take human behavior into account at, at all levels and, and with absolutely. all initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like so many different challenges that organizations face. Uh, so much of this starts with management, starts with effective and, and great management. I read a stat from Gallup, and I think it's 74% of team engagement variants can be attributed to just the manager of that team, which is astounding, right? That one person could have that significant of an impact on how engaged and and well-performing your team is. But it's the reality. So making your managers your biggest Mm -hmm. champions and providing them the right support and resources for them to be able to do that is key. Thank you very much. It's been a lovely conversation. I could talk for ages. (laughs) (laughs) I always have lots of questions, but we need to finish at some point. It's been really, really interesting. I think a lot of organizations and leaders can learn from your experience. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and for sharing your learnings. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you so much again for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this month's Ways Women Lead episode. But there is plenty more insightful and actionable advice from where this podcast came from. Check out our website on www.6-group.com if you'd like to know more about how to build and develop diverse, inclusive and effective leadership teams and how to progress your career as a leader. See you next time.